This is realestateinvestingmastery.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to realestateinvestingmastery.com, my favorite podcast in the world. <laughs> and I hope you guys enjoy these podcasts as much as we do enjoy producing them. And uh, I, I'm real excited about the guest we have on today. By the way, Alex is not able to join me today, but I have a good friend on the line, Jason Palliser from uh, St. Louis. Probably a pretty good place to live, don't you think, Jason? Totally agree. <laughs> We're both from St. Louis. <laughs> we both live here. We met each other, good grief, probably six, seven years ago, Jason. Is that right? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I would say about six or seven. Yeah, I'd say six or seven. Yeah, probably longer than that. Well, before I get into that, let me just say, guys, we have a free fast cash survival kit. And uh, you get that by going to realestateinvestingmastery.com realestateinvestingmastery.com. In that, Alex and I spill the beans on how we do our business, how we buy and sell properties, how we wholesale properties, make fast cash. We talk about how I wholesale lease options, how he does, Alex does traditional wholesaling. We talk about virtual assistance. We talk about how we do our marketing, we talk about mistakes beginning investors make and how to look at this as a business, not as a hobby. So you got to check it out. And you know we have a full money back guarantee, right? It's free. But if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back within the first 30 days. After the first 30 days, you're you're up a creek and you got to figure it out on your own. But no, seriously, all joking aside, check it out. We appreciate all your reviews in iTunes too. And if iTunes was working for me right now, I would be reading the, some of the reviews that we have. But it's asking me to download a new version of iTunes, and I don't want to do that. But we've got a lot of great reviews, and uh, we sure appreciate you leaving them. And uh, keep on leaving them. We appreciate that. So anyway... Jason Palliser is a friend of mine that I met when I was first getting started in real estate. And one of this guy was Sean McCloskey, actually. We interviewed him in one of the first two or three episodes. I was just getting started in the business. I was getting excited about real estate. And he said, Joe, you've got to talk to this guy, Jason. He's a mortgage broker. And if anybody can get it done, it's him. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. You know, that's nice. I was building my power team, you know, as we were supposed to do back then. But I had a friend at church who did mortgages. And so... I, you know, I kind of felt like obligated to work with this guy because he was a good friend at church. And so I bought with him about four homes and each time it was like pulling my hair out. It was so difficult. And I didn't know, was I doing something wrong or was he doing something wrong? And this was back when it was easy to get loans in mm -hmm. 05, 06. And so all of a sudden, he says, uh, you got to call this guy Sean. And I thought, well, I can't do it. So it wasn't until I met Jason's sister and her husband, who also live in the area. And I was talking about what I'm doing in real estate. And they said, you should talk to this guy, uh, Jason. You know, he's my brother. And um, so I said, okay. Well, I find out that this is actually the same guy that Sean's been telling me about for the previous year. So I call Jason up and, and he says, let's go meet. And so I met him in his office. And... He sat down with me, and in about 15, 20 minutes, I told him what I'm doing, and he said, well, this is how you should be doing it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, cool. So basically kind of tweaked <laughs> my whole business model and how I looked at everything. And, 
and I bought about another three or four homes through Jason. And I, I can't tell you the difference was amazing on how much easier it was to get done with getting these mortgages with Jason. He just had it streamlined. He knew the right banks because it's all about planning this out, right? And if you're buying homes, you've got to know, okay, well, your first several homes, you should be buying them with this bank. And then after that, you should be buying them with this bank. And getting it planned out so you know which banks to go to for your financing is so important and so critical. And you've got to have a plan of attack. And I didn't have a plan. I was just going at it haphazardly. And the other mortgage broker I was working with wasn't really an investor. You know, he was just helping people buy homes and um, so it's a very special niche that Jason's found in the lending industry. I started working with Jason, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And he is a very knowledgeable investor. He does deals himself. He do does lends. He lends. He has a fantastic product called the Real Estate REI Black Book that we're going to talk about later at the end. But I wanted to get Jason on the phone and talk about lending in today's market, talk about what's working for him, what's not, try to find out. He speaks all over the country, travels a lot, and talk about what he sees working for investors, what's working today, what's not. For those that are interested in getting financing on properties, how do you go about doing that? So it's a lot to chew off in one podcast episode, but Jason, I sure appreciate you having you here on the call. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I couldn't agree with some of the things that you're saying more. I mean, when we sat down, I, I saw the light bulb go on in your head as we started just talking strategies because um, yeah. most bankers don't cater to the investor community. So I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. I was doing the right thing in that I was taking action, right? I was doing something. But mm -hmm. you really it's so important to have people on your team that are smarter than you, that know what you should be doing and can look at your business from a different perspective and give you some ideas on how to tweak it, you know? And that's what Jason has been for me for the last few years, five, six years since we've been doing business together. He's really has helped me see, because he's smarter than me. I'll admit that. Don't tell Jason I said that, <laughs> but he is smarter than me. And it's so important that you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you in this business, like Jason, that can really take your business to another level. But Jason, talk a little bit about your background, you know, your history. How did you get started in real estate? What's your, what were you doing pre-real okay. estate days? I'm one of the few that actually, I went to college and I got a degree in finance and yeah. one class short of a minor in economics. So I'm one of the few people who knew when I was in college that I wanted to do stuff with numbers. And, and so how I got my start in the mortgage side uh, was simply I did an internship because that was a prerequisite to get your degree. And I did it at a mortgage brokerage. And what I quickly realized is that if you learn the guidelines, which sounds like something that you should do, right, when you're, yeah. when you're doing mortgages, but you'd be surprised how many people don't. They just uh, learn one or two programs and then try and fit everything into that program. So what I quickly learned at the intern, I did two internships, was that if I actually learn the guidelines, I can move a lot faster than the competition that I had in the marketplace. And then also, it was very easy for me to bring on more clients and help them create better solutions just because once you know the guidelines, it's, it's like the whole world opens up. You, you don't waste time. You know which banks to go to. You know which banks will never fund a deal. Right. And you know what banks are looking for. So you can actually customize for your client how they need to do things based upon their goals and actually deliver them to the right bank so they can maximize their investment potential. And so that's... 
right. kind of what I did. So uh, fast forward 17 years and several thousand investors later. Literally, guys. Um, I mean, sitting here today. You're not just BSing when you say thousands, right? <laughs> yeah, correct. Jason has literally helped thousands of investors with their investment business. Okay, so go on. Okay, so I mean, and so what happened was is do mortgages, and I started learning more about the investment stuff, which was a little different than the normal owner-occupied purchase or refinance. And the bottom line is the reason this stuff's so important is that most bankers don't really want to mess with investment property financing for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's tougher. Number two, you're getting a good deal as an investor, which you should, and because of that, the loan sizes are smaller. So the most bankers and uh, brokers don't feel as if they can – it's actually economical to do it, and it's like I said, it's a little more work. But what I quickly realized is that if you learn the investor guidelines and you actually listen to the client yeah. and listen to what they want to do, you can actually – start doing things in the right order and where most investors get stuck you can actually push them through that barrier and and take them to where they want to take them and do multiple deals for them and have a great relationship and make it a win-win when most bankers will shy away from it so what i did was learn the investor guidelines which most people don't do and started conveying that and actually pulling back the curtain and, and just like i did with you joe i actually sat down and showed you the guidelines that most and how to price out a loan which most bankers don't show people because they're scared to teach you because they feel like if they teach you too much that might render them useless and you don't need them anymore but what they don't understand is that when you give some of that knowledge on how to look pretty for the banks then they can go out and execute faster and bring deals to you and the conversations can be short instead of what can you do for me, what loan to value. If you teach them, they know, and they can just simply come back to you and say, hey, got another deal. And then from my perspective, I'm like, sweet, send me an email. Let's get the ball rolling. Nice. And then they can move on to the next deal. So I gave them the power by teaching them from a guideline perspective, which can and can't do. So therefore, you're not waiting around for answers. You're actually just executing on contracts, which is why the investors we touch, we take pride in knowing that they can go out and execute faster than their competition and win deals. Right. Now, you've been around the block for a while. You've seen a lot of ups and downs. What's your opinion on where we are in this market right now? From a lending perspective or just overall or both? Or? Well, how about both? First take it from a lending perspective and then take it from an investor's perspective. It's a loaded question. We could spend an hour on that, but... From a lending yeah, perspective, correct. from a bank, well, what do you see? Well, what I see is that obviously they've tightened up on guidelines. They were lending obviously way too loose a few years ago, so they've obviously corrected that. But um, they've gotten a little tighter on guidelines. So what I see today and moving forward is that you're going to see pretty much more of the same, which is tighter lending guidelines, lower loan-to-values, obviously good rates since obviously you know the, the market's a little bit in distress. So... They're trying to keep rates low to keep the economy moving forward, so that's a good thing. So it's a great opportunity now for investors. But, you know, you have to know. That's why that's why we're on this call. You have to know from a guideline perspective what you can and can't do. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just running in circles, and you're finding good deals because in today's marketplace, you can find good deals. But if you can't execute on them, then that's uh, from a business perspective, that's just a waste of time. So what I see, you know, from a lending perspective is that there's still going to be tighter guidelines but if you know what you can do, then it makes it easier for you to execute and actually look at a deal and say, this truly is a deal. Now, from the overall market or from an investor's perspective is that obviously you can get good deals right now. So I see that continuing for the next two to three years. So obviously there's more inventory that's going to hit the market. There's inventory that's being held off the market that everybody talks about. So all those things are pretty much true. So 
investors can enjoy going to sleep at night, waking up knowing that there's probably going to be more inventory for them to execute and create wealth for themselves, cash flow, and uh, make money on delivering a good product to the marketplace. And there's a need for investors in the marketplace. So yeah. there's a lot of inventory out there. So when you're making a decision to start investing, now's a good time. And you've never had more power. Your investor sword has never been heavier to swing oh. in my 17-year career. So that's what I see in the marketplace. And I think the good opportunities are going to continue. What do you see from a bank's point of view? What These lending requirements have tightened. What do you – can you talk about some of the guidelines today mm-hmm. that banks are looking for? Yeah, sure. So from an investor's perspective, so obviously well, – By the way, this by podcast, the way, you didn't even – sorry, Jason, interrupt. You were in the top like half of 1% in the nation, weren't you, for, for real estate investing type loans? Am I right? For a number of transactions – I've been ranked top 100 in the Mortgage Originator magazine yeah. in the nation. Which so that's huge. because of everybody that's listening to this podcast. So I do lots of transactions. Yeah. So And that's because the investors do multiple deals. And again, when you teach them what they can or can't do, and you actually show them the guidelines and how they price out a loan, right. it really empowers the investor to go out and, and land the good deal. So, And again, couldn't do those transactions without everybody that's listening to this podcast. So you know what you're um, so, talking about. <laughs> I wanted to emphasize that. Jason does know what he's talking about. Yeah. And you travel all over the country teaching this stuff. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I've been speaking for 13 years, um, just teaching people what they should and shouldn't do so they can go out and, and uh, execute a real investment plan instead of making a phone call saying, what's the rate, what loan to value can I do? Yeah. And actually go out there with a blueprint for success. So some of those things in the blueprint I'll just touch on from a guideline perspective. This is the part, if you're listening to the podcast, that they that you guys really need to take notes because if you have these things in place as your staples and your non-negotiables as an investor, then literally you can look at a deal and, and you don't need to call somebody. You already know it's a deal. So I'll start with credit scores. So obviously credit credit is important. And I'll go from an investor perspective. And, and if you remind me, Joe, for an end buyer, I'll give you I'll even give you a tip how to raise an end buyer's credit score that might be a little low. So good. good. So the first thing overall from an investor perspective, you can get an approval and get investment property finance and you want to buy an investment property and get get the banks to lend money to you on a 30-year fixed. Credit score-wise, you want to be at a 680 or higher on deal number one through four. And you'll hear me talk about deal one through four versus five through 10, just like you said, go to the right banks in the right order. Right. Some right. banks will do deal number five through 10 and some won't. So you just need to be aware of that. So the first thing is you want to have a 680 credit score. And um, if you don't have a 680 credit score, then your first order of business as an investor is to look at your credit score and see what you can do to improve it. And if you have a good person on your power team from a lending perspective, they should be able to help you with that. Yeah. And um, so now guidelines say that you can get loan approvals down to a 660, but there's some things that most people don't tell you because there's no sex appeal in doing it from a lending perspective, but I'm going to tell you and teach you here today. I could run and get an approval if you had a 670 potentially. The problem is is that when you run an approval, there could be hundreds of different things that pop up on that approval. So it'll say you're approved. Oh, but you got to verify X, Y, Z. And a lot of times when you're below the 680, the X, Y, Z, those other guidelines that you have to meet to satisfy to get a loan approval, you can't meet. So if you're a new investor and you're below a 680, and literally I'm holding an approval in my hand, it may say, show us two years experience managing rentals. Uh-huh. So you're approved, but you got to prove that. And if you don't have that, then you can't qualify. Right. And um, those are guidelines that pop up. Now, I know because I've done hundreds, thousands of approvals where 
some of those things drop off. So 680 is a good spot for you to be as an investor. So if you're anchoring in and getting ready to start growing a portfolio or doing whatever you do, you want to try and have a 680 credit score. Now, from a notes perspective, here's the shift. At deal number five, financed, mm-hmm. uh, they're free and clear, it doesn't matter. But if you have five houses financed, you're going for number five. So if you have four and you're going for number five, then the rules change. It is non-negotiable at that point. You have to have a 720. 720. Okay. So deal number five and higher, you have to have a 720, or you're not going to get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, 30-year fixed financing. So they changed that about four or five years ago, and so you have to have that 720 credit score. If you have a 719, you're not going to get an approval. So, again, it's very imperative that you make sure, as an investor, one of your non-negotiables when you're putting together your business plan and making sure that all, everything's, you know, the I's are dotted and T's are crossed, you want to look at your credit score. And, again, if you have a good lender on your power team, they should be able to look at that and give you suggestions to help your scores go even higher. Yeah. And um, so from a lending perspective, deal number one through four, 680 or higher, and deal number five and five and up, non-negotiable, 720 if you're going to get 30-year fixed financing, period. Again, you can go down to a 660, but some of those things that will pop up on your approval, you may not be able to satisfy, so you definitely want to make sure that um, from a credit score perspective that you've got things covered. Now, I'm just going to – a real quick question on that. Does it your credit score matter as much if you're putting more money down on the property? If you're putting maybe fifty percent down, does it matter as much? Same rules apply. Okay. So if you're putting fifty percent down, it's still a guideline is a guideline. They're capsulized. One doesn't flow over into the other. So if you still need that credit score, or even if you're putting fifty percent down, you're still gonna need the credit score. Okay. Now one thing that it may do, some of those tougher stipulations on your approval might go away, but it's very rare. And um, so guidelines are guidelines, credit scores needed or credit scores needed. Doing better in one area of the approval versus the other still doesn't stop the credit score. Right. That's why it's ultra important, and that's why I started with that. Now, from a uh, tip perspective, if you guys and gals on this podcast are buying property, fixing them, flipping them, lease optioning, trying to get that end buyer to the closing table, right? A few things. Number one, your buyer, and for most banks in today's marketplace, needs to have a uh, 640 credit score. There are some banks that will do an FHA loan down to a 580, but those are very, very tough. And um, just from a, you know, just from a off the cuff, don't, you know, don't hold me to it 100%, but I would tell you that probably somewhere in the ballpark of one or two deals out of 10 that are below a 640 might have a, even a chance of getting an approval through an underwriter. And there's very few places that'll even do that. So, yeah. but um, so by and large, you need a 640. So the credit score is important. So from a tip perspective, here's one thing you can do to try and get your buyers to the finish line, and uh, which most people don't know about. So, let's say you have a borrower who's at a 590 credit score or 600, and you know you're trying to get to the 640 or 615, whatever. It's below the 640. Yeah. First thing, if you're taking notes, the first thing I would tell you to do is look to see if they have student loans that are in deferment. Here's why. They're in deferment. They're not making payments or anything. So they're actually getting credit for having some loans on the books that aren't behind, but they're not making payments. So they're really not getting the full effect of uh, on-time payments because they're in deferment, right? So here's something that you can do. They can be in deferment. And if you, that should be the first question you ask. Hey, do you have student loans in deferment? Here's why. You can tell them to call up their loan service provider and make a principal payment 
So again, they're in deferment, but you can still make a principal payment. Have them make a principal payment of 500 bucks. Yeah. Here's why. Now they're going to get credit. Now they're going to benefit from showing on-time payments on, depending on if they have one student loan or all of them. I would make a principal payment on all of them. They're still in deferment, but you can still pay it down. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you have, now you have a history of paying on time, even though they're in deferment. And so you could have a very quickly, you could have a net tangible benefit and have your scores jump. So a lot of investors don't know that. So if you're trying to help get your buyers to the finish line, that is definitely one thing that you want to ask is, do you have student loans in deferment? If they do, you may just simply have them call up over the phone, make a principal payment, and then your lender your lender can request from the credit agencies, and once you get a credit update showing that they've paid on time, that could jump their score 20, 30, 40 points. So we have somebody that's just below getting to the finish line from a credit score perspective. If you make a principal payment on those deferred student loans, that could be the catalyst to get you the credit score that you need so that you can get your deal to the closing table, make your 10, 15, 20, 30 grand, and move on to the next deal as an investor. Nice. So um, there's always a way to try and get the deal done. And I always say this from a credit score perspective. Credit scoring and higher credit scores is just a time frame. If you do what you're supposed to do and you implement some of these strategies or or you start paying things on time again, no one can stop you from getting financing because eventually your scores will be where they need to be. Yeah. And, and if you know more and learn more about credit scoring, then you can actually raise those scores and get your buyers to the finish line. Or maybe your competition doesn't. And when you get a reputation for doing that, here's the cool part. If you help somebody do that, you have a walking billboard. They're going to tell other people that you helped them get to the finish line and start referring people to you. So, so it's a very large from an investor's perspective, net tangible benefit for you and your business if you start to learn some of these guidelines and, and implement them because then other people will start to view you as that expert in the marketplace and, and bring deals to you, which is what everybody wants. That's huge. Yeah, so from a credit score perspective, as an investor, 680 on deal number one through four, deal number five and higher, 720. And then most places need a 640 for your end buyer to get FHA financing to uh, close the bill so that you can sell it and they can be happy as a homeowner. And your tip is always ask, do you have student loans? Great. Are they in deferment? If so, have them call up and make a principal payment and um, get a credit update and your scores might be where you need to be to get to the finish line. Good. So let me move on to uh, just another cross your fingers, folks. As soon as I say this, I know everybody's going to get excited, but here's another guideline tidbit, proposed guideline that hopefully comes in place from a program perspective that um, will definitely help out investors is that FHA for a while now, I think that they're trying to get it approved by the first quarter of next year. FHA is, is looking to come out with a investor rehab loan. So cross your fingers, folks. FHA has thrown it out and put it on the table saying, hey, we know that we need to provide something in the marketplace to to spark more action from investors. And so where FHA is obviously 99.9% of the time owner-occupied, right? So uh, they're looking at an investor rehab product that you buy a property, get the bids, and they'll give you good financing for you to buy and fix the property up. So I'm going to have to hire a lot of people if that happens. Wow. So <laughs> because, do, do you know anything yeah. more than that, like what their guidelines will be? No, from an LTV perspective, they just threw it out on the table saying, just simply saying that, hey, we need to come out with an investor rehab product because a lot of these properties simply can't get financed because there's a broken window, there's pipes missing, there's a hole in the wall, there's 
water damage or whatever. So you're not going to get a regular loan. So now that segment of the marketplace can only really just pay cash or get private money because most banks aren't going to lend on it. So they're looking to provide a solution for that, knowing that, hey, some of these just need a quick fix and and now the investor now the investor is starting to scoop up that inventory and, again, keep the economy moving forward. So they just simply mentioned that um, they're looking to do something like that, but from a loan-to-value perspective, I'm not sure yet. And, again, part of that is by design. I mentally shut that part of my brain down because, you know, I don't uh, count the chickens before the hatch. So they have to tell me it's there, and then I'll read every guideline start to finish and let the whole world know. So that could be coming, so just be on the lookout for that. And, obviously, you can just go to Google and look up FHA and you might even just type in FHA investor loans and, and see what they've put out there, you know, publications about it. That'll be awesome if it happens. Yep. So next thing I want to talk about is loan-to-values because a lot of people are walking around with a incorrect blueprint on what you can do from a loan-to-value perspective and get financing, and there's nothing worse than finding out what you thought you knew is not correct for an investor yeah. when you're already under contract and you have your earnest money down. So loan-to-value... I'll talk about that from a single family and a multifamily perspective, and also from four or five years ago to today. So four or five years ago, four or five years ago, you could do, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you're doing an investor deal. Yeah, you can get 80%, 80%, 80% all day long. So you're buying it for 100, you can get a loan for 80 or whatever. You're refinancing, you can get cash out to an 80. So some of those rules have changed. So about four years ago, you could still do 80%. Here's the problem. They took the pricing adjustment which is how loan officers price out loans to see what your interest rate of cost would be and to see if it's even cost-effective to do it. They raised the pricing here like 50%, which almost takes up all of any commissionable income for a lender or a broker to do an investor deal to 80%. So if a lot of you are walking around going, I'm going to get a loan to value of 80%, I would tell you to scale that back 5%. Okay. When you try and get financing at 75% loan to value, 75% loan to value then that pricing hit goes way down, and now all of a sudden the cost and the rates are more palatable. So 80% technically is still available, but from a cost and, and interest rate perspective, a lot of people have an eye-opening experience, and I hate to say it, but sometimes it's after you've written a contract and you're like, whoa, I plan on putting 20% down, and then they see just how not cost-effective it is. So if you're taking notes, I would tell you from a single-family residence perspective and deal number one through four, definitely plan on being at a 75 loan to value for your deals to be rate and cost effective. If you're going to 80, it's going to sting, and it might all of a sudden make that cash flow not look as nice, so just be aware of that. And the reason you need to know it, maybe you're flipping to other people and you're wholesaling. Yeah, I was going to say that. They need to know it as well. I was going to say that. One of yeah, the- so they need to know it as well. When you have a property and you're wholesaling it, especially to there's a lot of California investors right now buying properties, and you know a lot of them are buying cash, but a lot of them are still getting financing on them. When you're calculating your numbers for cash flow and return on investment and cash on cash return, good general rule of thumb is figure on putting 25% down on a property when you're calculating your numbers. That's good. You may not be buying and getting a mortgage yourself, but you've got to know this stuff if you're wholesaling properties to other investors who may be getting financing, you need to know what they're going to be having to go through so you can offer your services as kind of like a full-service wholesaler. You know what I mean? But um, very good. Absolutely correct. Yeah. So loan-to-value, here's the other thing I want you to know and learn, is that 
at deal number five. So it's always deal number five, right? That's where the guidelines dramatically change. Yeah. To get 30-year fixed financing, non-negotiable. At deal number five that you're trying to finance, it is 70% loan to value. Okay. So you can't even get 75. You can't even get 80. So at deal number five and higher, it's a 70% loan to value, and that's a huge, huge learning curve for a lot of people that haven't taken the time to put the right person on their power team to know and understand what you can and can't do from a loan-to-value perspective because that's obviously going to affect how much money you have to put down. If you were thinking, you know what, hey, I'm I'm still going to 75% or even, you know what, I'll pay more. I'm going to go to 80 so that I can have more money in my pocket to do another deal. Well, if you weren't aware of that and it's deal number five, which happens all the time, you find out at 70% that could hurt, that could hurt the cash in the bank to do the next deal. You flat out may not have enough to do that deal. So very, very important. Is this the same for multifamily or single family? Yeah, at deal number five and higher, single family or multifamily doesn't matter. Now, that was the next thing I was going to say. Now, loan to value on a two family and four family, same rules apply, deal number one through four, 75%. But on a two to four family, they're not going to, you know how I said you could go to 80, but it'll hurt. 99% of banks are not going to let you do an 80% loan to value, even if it's deal number one through four on a two to four family. There's just simply more risk from the bank's perspective. Yeah. Two people can get mad at you at a two family versus a single family and kick a hole in the wall and create problems for you instead of one. So that's the bank's view. Four family, there's four people that could get mad and kick a hole in the wall. So it's more risk. So if you're taking notes, I would tell you this, loan to value on a two to four family, just to play it safe, because you, you can go to 75 deal number one through four, I would say always play it safe and on a multi-unit, just mentally resign yourself to the fact that you're probably going to have a 70% loan to value. Jason, explain a little bit the source of funds for that 25-30% down payment. Does it have to be seasoned okay. in your bank account? Can it come from another private lender? What do you give mm-hmm. advice to investors for that? Okay, sure. So transitioning, so if we're going to transition over to the reserve part of it, a lot of investors don't know. And understand that there's two parts about having reserves to, to knock down investment real estate. The first one is down payment, and the second one is literally guideline-wise called reserves. How much house payments do you need for that particular investment deal you're doing in reserves in the bank for the banks to feel comfortable to give you the good financing? So down payment-wise, you need to have that money seasoned, just like you season a steak and leave it overnight. What's the amount of time it has to be seasoned in a bank account? The answer is 60 days. Okay. If you've had money in the bank for 59 days and you're trying to close, they're not going to let you. You have to have that money in in your bank account for 60 days, and that money is considered seasoned for down payment. Yeah. And I would caution you, I would put it in your personal account. If you have it in your business account, they may not approve your loan. And I know a lot of people that are listening to this are saying, shoot, well, I have my own uh, business account set up for my investment business, and I got a bunch of money in there. Most banks aren't going to count that as reserves for down payment. Here's why. Let's say you have thirty grand in your business account, and down payment wise you need twenty four grand, and in your personal account you have ten grand, so you don't have enough in your personal. You're like, well, I'll just pull it out of my business account. That's what it's for. I agree logically. Um, I could agree with you more. The problem is that banks have guidelines in place that state you can't. Most of them say you can't use your business funds for down payment. Here's why: they don't know if it costs a dollar a month to run your business or 50 grand per month to run your business. So the use of your business funds for down payment may hurt your company. And they don't know that, and they don't even want to get into that. So 
It used to be in the past. Remember I said I would talk about the past and now? In the past, it didn't matter. Here's why. All they had to do is just get a one-page document from your CPA that simply states the use of these funds for down payment from the business account will not hurt the economic viability of the company. And then the underwriter says, okay, good enough for me. And they check a little box, put that uh, documentation-wise in the folder and approve your loan. Well, in today's marketplace, trying to get an approval when you're using your business funds is very, very difficult. So if you're taking notes, I'd underline that, circle it, star it, highlight it, do whatever you need to do. Make sure, it's my job to teach you here on this call and this podcast to look pretty and not get stuck. My job is to make you look pretty to the banks and not get stuck. So if you know it ahead of time, get that money in your personal account. Otherwise, you may not be able to get that approval. And again, you're in danger of losing the deal and also potentially your earnest money. So that's from down payment perspective, okay? Yeah. Now, if you have stock, if you have mutual funds, whatever, if you have something that's non-liquid like a stock, you can use that for down payment. You just have to show proof that you liquidated it. And um, so there's nothing wrong with that if, if you're using it to invest. So if it's something that's not liquid like a checking savings money market, they're fine with that. You just need to show proof that you liquidated it, and then you can use that. Then that doesn't need the 60-day seasoning because they see where it came from you show proof you liquidated it. So you should be good there. But 60 days reserves, they basically just want to make sure you're not getting money from somewhere else. If they're going to give you the good interest rates and you qualify credit score-wise, loan-to-value, they want to see that it was your money. Because in yeah. the past, they didn't have these reserve requirements. So people would say, hey, man, I got a good deal and I got good credit. Just give me some of your money and then I'll go buy this deal. So they were lending and really the person didn't have the capacity to put their own money down. So having said that, that's why they came up with some of these guidelines stating that if it's been in your account for 60 days, we are going to assume that it's yours. And um, so very, very big deal. Now, reserves from how much money do you need in the bank after you buy the property, put your money down? What do lenders want to see from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guideline perspective? Because that flows back to all the banks because all banks reserve the right to get more funds to lend out by selling to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So... Fannie and Freddie say you have to have six months reserves of that house payment. So if your house payment with taxes and insurance is $500 and you're trying to finance that deal after you put your down payment down, they want to see six months of the 500 so three grand. So the rule is for reserves in the bank is six months of the house you're trying to finance. And then on deal one through four, any other investment property you have, let's say you have one more that's a $500 payment, it's six months on the house you're trying to do, the subject house, wow. and then the other one that you already own is two months payments. For every other so home you two own? Months, yes, okay. two months payments. So if that one's 500, now you need four grand in reserves. Again, not that big of a deal. Write this down. Here's where it becomes a big deal. At deal number five, financed and higher, the rule becomes very simple. Six months payments, all houses. Wow. So... Remember I said deal number five, 720 credit score. Deal number five, maximum loan to value of 70. Deal number five, six months reserves, all house payments. So if your house payments add up to three grand at deal number five, on the investment side, you can exclude your primary house payment. You don't have to worry about that. On the investment side, if you've got five houses finance or you're, deal, or you're going for deal number five, whatever it is, and, and the new payment plus the other investment payments add up to three grand, three grand times six is $18,000. They can be checking, saving, money market, stocks, CDs, mutual funds, cash value in a life insurance policy, you name it, 401k. Typically, they don't, they don't let you – they get squeamish on 401ks and IRAs just because the market's been fluctuating. So, remember, look pretty and don't get stuck. 
here's why this is important. As you're doing deals, you know now, I just gave you the blueprint. You know now what you need to look like and what you have in the bank. So here's the cool thing. If you're going for deal number five and now you know, oh my gosh, I need 11 grand in the bank and you have nine, by the time you write a contract, 30 days to close, 30 days to fix it up, turn around and refinance it or do whatever you're doing, right? You're 60, 90 days down the road. Didn't I already say that you just have to have it in your account for 60 days? If you're two grand short because we're giving you the blueprint, by the time you write that contract and get some private funding to fix it up and then get some good financing on the back end, and you're 60, 90 days down the road anyways. So you have an ample opportunity to get that money in the bank so that you look pretty and you don't get stuck. So from a guideline perspective, go into battle with your battle plan, and it starts with making sure that you have the right amount of reserves in the bank. Make sense, Joe? Yeah, very good. And are you going to talk about debt-to-income ratio? It kind of relates to this, doesn't it? Sure, yeah, yeah. We can, um, we'll talk about debt ratio as well. So we'll go ahead and talk about that now, and then I'll go into loan size. Okay. Debt ratio, here's what the banks want to see. If you're doing investment property financing, they're going to want to see a debt ratio of 45% or less. Here's how that's calculated. They just take your gross income, and let's say it's ten grand a month, and as long as all your payments that are on your credit report, credit cards, student loans, car payments, house payments, whatever other payments you might have on there, any other installment payments, as long as those add up to 4500 or less, then from a debt ratio perspective, you're in a good position to get to get your loan approved from a debt ratio perspective. So they've tightened up a little bit, so I would say 42 to 45% from a debt ratio perspective, and you can do that. Tips for you. If you're trying to qualify yourself and a spouse, and your spouse is the one that's debt heavy, and you may want to look at it from the perspective of just getting yourself financed, and, and your spouse is still signed on the paperwork because you're married, but just leave them off of the application so that you qualify. Yeah. Now, one big thing, and this is a big, big tip for you, because this is where I see investors paint themselves into a quarter, debt ratio-wise. I know a lot of people say, well, hey, I got this property, and it's going to cash flow well, and so that should help out my debt ratio. That's true to an extent. So here are the rules to help your debt ratio out from, from the perspective of your cash flow from your lease agreements. So can you use your lease agreements as income? Here are the rules. When you're buying a property, and I'll just tell you what you can count. Let's say your payment's going to be 750 on the property. From a lease perspective or a rental perspective, your income, your rental or lease income, they only give you credit for 75% to qualify you. Okay. So if you literally wanted to, to break even, the payment was 750, you'd need to rent that out or have a lease payment of 1000 because you're going to take 25% off and say that's the number to qualify you. So therefore, you added 715 payments, but you added 715 income, so that's a wash. Right. That's why when you're getting property to cash flow, if you qualify debt ratio-wise out of the gate and make sure you do, moving forward, you should literally, if you do things right, never not qualify for the next deal from a debt-to-income ratio perspective because you're cash flowing. Because right. people, sometimes people forget, they're like, well, how could I do a third deal? I always say, well, you're not buying houses just to make house payments with no income coming in, right? And then they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. But now here's the caveat. Here's the big, big, big caveat. Number one, banks have no choice to qualify in you wise. If you have a lease, they have to count it when you buy it because you're buying it and there's no past track record, right? If you got a lease and you can prove it, they'll take 75% of it 
to offset that payment and calculate your debt ratio. So that's a good thing for us as investors. Here's where the skull and crossbones come in from a debt-to-income ratio perspective and going from being somebody who's approved to an investor that can't get financing and not approved. The number one thing that I see that stops investors in their tracks is that that is the rule when you buy that property in that calendar year. So let's say you bought it in September and the same rules applied as I just said. So 750 payment, you have a rental income agreement of 1000 a month, so they take 25% off. So literally, that didn't help or hurt your debt ratio because you have income coming in, so that's wonderful. Let's fast forward to April and you do your taxes. I want you to write this down, burn this in your brain. As soon as you hand those taxes in, that property is going to be on your Schedule E, Schedule of Property Own, right? So as soon as you hand in your taxes, your lease agreement no longer exists. But Jason, no, no, I have a lease agreement. I'm still getting the payments and I can prove it. And, but from an underwriter's perspective, that's not the way it works. Once it's on your Schedule E, your Schedule E says, I own this property and I'm either making money on this property or I'm proving it on my Schedule E or I'm losing money. And I think we all know that most of us are going to write off pretty much everything. That's why people buy investment property. Here's the problem. As soon as it's on your schedule, you can't say, hey, look at my lease agreement. I'm getting $1,000. I should qualify. And then show the IRS, no, 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 I'm bleeding money. Look, I'm losing money. I don't want to pay any taxes on it. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Oh, come on, Jason. <laughs> I'm sorry. But now, so here's what I, I would what, tell you. I know what you're saying. Yeah, so here's what I would tell you. Do your write-offs. You shouldn't have to pay really any any income tax on that rental money coming in, which is good. But and you can show a negative on your Schedule E, which is wonderful. Just don't go crazy and deduct, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars and say, Ha ha, I got an extra two thousand dollars back on my tax return this year. Ha ha. To me, I'm wonderful. When it could cause you not to qualify for the next property that's gonna cash flow four hundred a month. And so basically what you just did, because because you wrote so much off that it's a negative a huge negative number now, you wrote so much off that now you can't get that property that cash flows 400. So you just cost yourself maybe a good property that has 40 grand in equity on top of 400 monthly cash flow. Yeah. Don't shoot yourself in the investor foot by going crazy on all your write-offs on your Schedule E. So what I tell most people to do is talk to your CPA. Obviously consult with your CPA. They're the professionals here, so there's my disclaimer. But talk to them about it and say, hey, look, I obviously want to utilize the write-offs that I'm entitled to. But what I would tell you is on your Schedule E, show a little bit of a loss. But don't go crazy and show some big $15,000, $20,000 loss because we're going to have to average that out. Not only are we going to count that full payment against you now in your debt ratio, which could obviously skyrocket your debt ratio, but if you're showing a loss, they may add that as another liability, which most people don't know. And um, so here's why I tell you, just show a loss. Don't pay any rental. Don't pay any uh, tax on your rental income. But uh, I get to add back. So if you're writing things down, I get to add back depreciation. So if you're breaking even, I get to add back and start adding income back again to offset that house payment, right? To make sure your debt ratio is better. I get to add back depreciation. I get to add back the taxes you pay per year on that property. I get to add back your insurance premiums. And then a few various other items as well. I won't bore you with them, but we can add those back. Let's say those add up to seven grand, eight grand. I'll take that eight grand positive now again, divide that by 12, and I'm going to take that off of your payment. So let's say it was to make my life easy, 12 grand. So with all the things that I get to add back in, because you didn't show monster write-offs, I get to add back 12 grand, divide by 12, that's $1,000 that I get to apply towards that 750 
now it's like that payment doesn't exist and you can qualify for the next house that has equity and that's going to cash flow with you and, and create wealth. So very, very big deal. When you, It is a big deal as an investor when you go to start doing your taxes and put properties on your Schedule E. I can look at your Schedule E and say 123 Candy Lane and says a negative $1,000. I'm completely fine with that because I'm going to add that depreciation, taxes, insurance, all those items. And that number is going to become positive very quickly again. Yeah. And I take that off of that payment to help you qualify. But if you have monster write-offs and you're going to squeeze out a little bit more from Uncle Sam, just realize you may not be able to get the next two properties because you don't income qualify anymore. That's a huge deal. People think, well, look, i got a lease agreement after it's on your Schedule E. Here's why. You've already put your income on that Schedule E, so you've already accounted for it. That's why it doesn't count anymore. They're saying, well, no, no, no. Okay, you got a lease agreement, but I see right there the income you reported on your Schedule E. Then they just look at the bottom line for that property and say, how negative are you? Add those items back, and that's how they calculate income or loss on that property. So be very, very, very careful. Very Make good. sense? Oh, yeah. It just goes to emphasize the point how important it is to have somebody on your team that understands this stuff because it's a moving target, you know. But if you have somebody that you can sit down with and plan this stuff out before you start making offers on properties, it is so helpful to know what you can and what you cannot do and what you need to fix and adjust so you can start making uh, offers on properties and start buying properties. Very good. Absolutely correct. So if you're doing it the right way and you know going into the investment world battle ahead of time with a good blueprint for success, then then you're going to push your success to the finish line a thousand times easier. But that is one of the biggest things that I see when people are trying to get loan approvals and they're just going about their business, they do their taxes, and then all of a sudden they go for the next deal and then somebody has to come in and say, hey, you wrote all this off, you don't qualify anymore, period. And um, that is something that you want to avoid at all costs. So good. let me hit you from the perspective now of how do you do deals and try and spend as little money as possible. So there's just one caveat. So what I would tell you to do, which is what I told Joe to do as well when we sat down, was that use other people's money. If you find good deals that when your purchase price plus your fix-up money equals 60 to 70% of the future value, you could probably get hard money and private money to buy it and fix it, yeah. which is what we do for most of our investors. We get you all the money to buy it, all the money to fix it. You get in and out in 30 days or 60 days, and then we just turn right around with no seasoning whatsoever, so no property seasoning, and refinance it into a 30-year fix to 4.75 in today's marketplace. I just wanted to clarify that because that's so important what you said. You're talking about using other people's money. And mm -hmm. you're talking about now you find a deal that needs some work, needs some mm -hmm. rehab. You're talking about getting some other people's money to private money, hard money, to buy it, fix it up, and then refinance it into a 30-year fixed mortgage. Is that what you're talking about? Uh-huh. Okay, good. I always say that money chases good deals. Mm -hmm. So if you know what a good deal looks like from the standpoint of what a private lender or a hard money lender would look for, and you're looking for deals that fall into that category, you have a supreme opportunity to get them to lend the money to buy it, lend the money to fix it, because you found a deal to where their exposure is only 60% of the future value right. or 70% of the future value. And here's the cool part. When you do that, hard money lenders, that's kind of their sweet spot, that particular formula. Well, think about this. Then when you go to refinance it on the back end, aren't you already at a 70% loan to value or less? Didn't I say that, you know, 70 to 75 is your sweet spot? So yeah. you're consistent with the marketplace from a 
lending perspective is looking for. So, again, looking pretty without getting stuck. I mean, most of our investors get in and out of deals with little to no money. Why is that so important? Because if you don't have to use your own money, correct me where I'm wrong here, folks, don't you still have those reserves in the bank? I know a lot of you that are listening to this podcast are saying, man, I've only got 15 to 20 grand to play with. Well, guess what? That's a lot of money in the bank for reserves, which is wonderful. So if you just simply add one step to the process, which is find really good deals that are at 60% or 70% of the future value after you've bought it and fixed it, you have a supreme opportunity to not even have to worry about putting down payment down. And you have plenty of money in reserves, which makes me happy as a lender. You get your six months payments on the next eight deals or whatever. And so you're looking pretty without getting stuck. And that's why investors who take the time to to learn what you can do guideline-wise and go out there in the marketplace and implement it, that's why you can get multiple deals without using your own money and without sitting there going, well, I only have enough to do one deal. And then after that, I'm going to have to find some new uh, crazy ninja lending secret way to get (laughs) deals done that doesn't exist. We don't want to go into that category. Right. I love when you talk about this stuff because this is advanced. This is ninja stuff what you're talking about, but it's basic 101 financing, right? But talk about, explain, clarify. You can get financing on these properties without any of your own money, but how does it work from getting the private lending up front or hard money lending up front to refinancing into a fixed 30-year mortgage but not putting any of your own money down? Where does the down payment come from? The down payment, there isn't one. It comes from the hard money lender. The hard money lender is looking at it is, did you find a good enough deal for us to lend money and we feel protected? Because they're going to put a lien against the property, right? So right. if you know what the hard money lender is looking for, then they will give you all the money to buy it. They will give you all the money to fix it. Typical terms for a hard money lender are they're going to charge you, though, four points right. for five points. And so if it's a $50,000 deal, and they charge you five points for the use of their money. That's 2500 So you may have to have that 2500 to go to closing with, and then the hard money lender gives you the money to buy it and fix it. If it's a good enough deal, a lot of times they'll even finance that in for you. So you literally can, if it's a good enough deal, get in and out of the deal with no money. Because then after that, all I'm doing is going to the bank and saying, look, they owe sixty-five grand. it's worth a hundred. All I want to do is just pay off that hard money lender at a higher interest rate. And if you've got a good lender on your power team, they know the banks that allow you to do that. A lot of banks won't refinance you until you've owned the property for a year. Their rule is you have to season or own the house for a year. A good investment lender that knows the banks that will work with you, they don't run into those issues. So literally, you can fix it up and you can turn right around and refinance it into a 30-year fix. And, and if the deal is good enough, you might not have changed by a single penny. And that's the beauty of... Yeah. knowing what guidelines are so that you can actually execute in the marketplace and utilize the resources that are available. I mean, here's the cool part. And then here's the mental shift I want you to make. Hard money lenders, private lenders, they don't lend money unless it's a good deal. Yeah. So a lot of times you get people say, man, they, they won't lend me the money. Well, guess what? Thank They've God. probably done this way more than you have. <laughs> yeah. You should be happy. It's your opportunity to go back and negotiate a better deal. Exactly. Um, maybe you go back and negotiate and say, look, they won't even lend on this, and you negotiate another five grand off, and then the lender's like, okay, now we're in the right, now exactly. we're in the right spot. Exactly. And um, so you should be excited when they don't want to lend to you, because that means the deal's probably not good enough, and they have triggers in place to make sure whether or not they think it's a good deal or not. And if they don't, it's probably not. It's probably not a good enough deal. 
Yeah. And um, that's your opportunity to go back, get a better deal, or find a different one. Because we're not at a lack of inventory in the marketplace. It's, it's a way to get out of the contract if you have to, too, right? Hey, my can't yeah, get financing for it. I have to get out, get your earnest money back. Absolutely correct. So that is a strategy if you're taking notes that I would definitely tell you to, to put in motion. Find good deals that have equity on the back end that need fix-up. Here's the cool part. Without you even knowing it or thinking about it until I say it, think of what you're doing as well. If that's going to be a blueprint you put in place to implement and execute, here's the cool part. These properties that need fix-up, other investors out there, they're no longer your competition because they're probably not using these strategies. So they can't get financing. There's something wrong with the house. A regular bank, which is what they're trying to get done, won't give financing on that house that, that has some repairs needed, right? So you've essentially, by looking at, by putting these strategies in motion, you've essentially decreased the level of competition in your marketplace because they don't simply have a plan in place to execute and know how important it is as a investment business owner to go out and, and interview some hard money lenders and private money lenders to see what they're looking for and then go find deals that are consistent with what they're looking for. Right. So it's a supreme opportunity to keep your bank account roughly where it's at today versus tomorrow instead of putting a bunch of money down, having more reserves in the bank and getting finding good deals and decreasing your competition. That's a quadruple threat there. Well, yeah. And, and this is what most people don't do. Well, and the key to it all is understanding how to find those good deals. And they are out there. I mean, Jason, you have investors bringing these kinds of deals to you all the time, don't you? Yep. On a weekly basis, you got it. I'm saying that to encourage you because if you're thinking, man, I can't find those kinds of deals. Well, they're out there. They really are. And you just have to learn how to find them and expect them. And the great thing about having a lender on your team is, is as you're negotiating with the seller, you can say, look, my lender won't even lend on this deal. It's not good enough. I can't buy it unless I'm at this price. And you have the confidence to tell the sellers this when you're negotiating with them. And it's a great uh, safety net. It really, really is. This is good. Good stuff. Yep. Couldn't agree with you more. One last thing that I'll say uh, just from this perspective and kind of trying to tie a bow on it and uh, answering any other questions that uh, you might have that you think are important, Joe, is that yeah. one thing that the banks, if you want to, buy and fix them and turn around and get good financing on them. In the past, you could buy it and change a light bulb, and then if it's worth more money, the banks will lend to you. Yeah. I would tell you this. If a bank's going to let you refinance immediately to get rid of the hard money loan with no seasoning, you have to do work to the property. So painting walls and changing a light fixture it probably isn't going to cut it. You need to do it a minimum paint carpet, maybe some kitchen cabinets, update a bathroom, you know, a, a small three-foot-by-five-foot bathroom or whatever, those are some of the things that you need to do to fix it up to start getting into that spot where you can truly call it a property that you've updated. So if you just go in there and just paint and put up a light fixture, doesn't mean that the equity isn't there. doesn't mean that they won't refinance it for you. They may make you wait those six months. You may have to season it for six months or 12 months. So I would just say do enough work. And um, what's enough work? I'm not an underwriter, can't tell you, but I can definitely say that it's you got to do more than paint. That's yeah. that's definitely not going to cut it. You got to keep. You can't just add a pedestal sink uh -huh. and then say, "Oh, look at look what I did," and and think you're going to get financing. So you have to do enough work. Take pictures, keep your receipts, right? Things like mm -hmm. that. Good. Yep, underwriter can answer receipts. You show before and after pictures showing that you did work. That's going to go a long way. You're showing an underwriter. Look, I am prepared and. I did do good work, and you're just making it easier for them to lend you money. So just 
do those things that I've mentioned, do those things Joe mentioned, and then you're prepared to get the financing that you deserve. Very good. Mm-hmm. Jason, are there any banks out there lending rehab loans at all anymore? Very difficult to do. Most banks have shied away from that just because they don't know if you're going to put a $100 doorknob in a $5 doorknob neighborhood or if you're going to put a $5 doorknob in a $100 doorknob neighborhood. There's an element of risk there. And so with banks just getting bludgeoned with bad loans and foreclosures, for them to try and dip their toes in that water, today's marketplace is very, very bitter pill for them to swallow. So I would say that by and large, lenders have shied away from that. That's why private money and hard money, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. Yeah. If you know your guidelines and, mm-hmm. and you know what they're looking for, you can grow a portfolio without depleting your bank account. Yep. There are lenders out there that still do private lending and hard lending, hard money lending. They are out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so talk a little bit, Jason, about the retail end buyer buying these properties. What are banks looking for as far as appraisals, seasoning, resale restrictions, things like that? Can you touch on that, please? These are for Uh, the end buyers. The retail buyers are going to be living in the home and financing these properties after you fix them up. Correct. So by and large, when you're going to sell it to your lease option or your retail buyer after you buy and fix or... They do whatever they need to do to get to the finish line. Like I said before, 640 credit score gave you the tip of making a principal payment on student loans, and that could help jump the score up. Debt ratio-wise, you're going to be at um, roughly the 45 to 48 potentially debt ratio for an FHA. Most of these buyers are going to be FHA, so I'm going to speak from that perspective. They're the most lenient from a credit score perspective. And then also they let you put the least amount of money down. Right. So... They're going to have to put 3.5% down. So they're going to be required to put 3.5% down. That can be a gift. So it can be a gift from, as long as they have a gift letter and show proof that they put it in the bank, then that down payment can absolutely be a gift. Other things that people don't know about trying to solve a down payment problem to get your deals from a retail buyer's perspective to the closing table is that most people don't know that their work, their work can actually give them the down payment. Mm-hmm. So they can actually get a letter from work stating that, um, hey, we're giving them the cash to put their down payment. So a lot of people don't know that. And um, so there's definitely ways that you can get them to the closing table. As a seller, I would plan when you're analyzing your deal, I would plan on paying the person's closing cost buying it because most of the time they're just trying to come up with that money for down payment. So just realize you're probably going to write into the contract to where you as a seller are going to pay their closing cost. So just be prepared for that. Good. I would say for just generalizing a hundred thousand dollar purchase price, I would be prepared to pay three to four thousand towards their closing cost to pay for their taxes, insurance, title, appraisal, according to their deed of trust, tax service fee, potentially a review appraisal, you never know. So so just be prepared for that. Other things that I would tell you are if you own it and you're trying to flip it to that end buyer, most banks want to see that you've been on title or own that property for ninety days. And this is how silly it is. If you have a buyer and you sign the contract on the 89th day and you turn that loan in, most banks are going to turn that loan down. Hmm. I know it sounds silly, but you have to be on title for 90 days with most of these banks before you can submit the, before you can even sign the application, before you can sign the contract. You name it. So be very, very careful on that. And again, from your standpoint as the business owner, just realize that those are typically the rules. And so, with most banks, you need to be on title for 90 days. If it's a conventional deal, which very few of them are, if it's a conventional deal, there is no seasoning rule. And in fact, there isn't one for FHA right now either. But the problem is is that 
guidelines can change at any time. So all the banks that know that they're going to sell to FHA or Fannie and Freddie have their own what we call banking overlays in place. It's an overlay on top of the guidelines just to make sure that they're protected just in case all of a sudden some big sweeping change comes down from FHA or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so most of them are 90 days if it's conventional from an FHA perspective. But if it's conventional, then most of them are still 90 days. Some of them will do 30 days. So just know going in, it's a very, very good question to ask your lender that's on your power team just so that you're well-informed and, and you're not doing something just from a logistical standpoint that could have been avoided that could obviously hurt the chances of you closing out that deal. So so I would tell you that uh, most of the time you're probably going to own it for 90 days. And um, there's still places, very rare, that you can try and turn around and, and flip the property, but it's very, very difficult to do. Let's say you finish your rehab in two, three weeks. You start marketing the home. You find somebody who wants it right away. Could you lease it to them for a few months and then sell it to them? After that, are there restrictions against that? Some lenders don't like that, that they're leasing from you and then they're going to buy it. But if your lender on your power team is any good, then uh, they have lenders in place that those lenders don't care. As long as you've owned it for 90 days, you should be good. Okay. Very good. Uh, talk about appraisals a little bit, Jason. What are you seeing? I know a few years ago, man, everybody was freaking out because it was so hard to get a property appraised. And I th it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still pretty tough. I mean, what are you seeing these days now with, with appraisals and what are the requirements? How are they coming in? Things like that. So from an appraisal perspective, I'll talk about, you know, a few years ago versus now. A few years ago, it was the com sold comparables to derive the value needed to be within a mile radius of the of the subject home. And then the comparable needed to be, the house that you're comparing to needed to be sold 12 months or less to be a viable comp to compare to your subject property to get the value. Today, they want to see comparables that are six months old or less. And sometimes, just depending on the lender in the area of the United States and how bad things are, sometimes it needs to be 90 days or less. Wow. So from your perspective, um, if you're trying to find out what the value is, better be looking at comps that are six months or less and within a half a mile. So instead of a mile, now it's a half a mile. So that's what I would tell you to look at. Also, too, in today's marketplace, instead of three comps, a lot of times the banks want four comps or five comps. And additionally, they also want you to add a comp in there, a pending sale. So they want to see that within a half mile that there's a pending sale as well. So a property that's under contract. So they might want some extra comps. They might even want a pending sale on your appraisal to derive the value. And instead of a mile and a year old, now it's a half a mile and six months old or less. And if you're buying a property to flip and you know it's, you're going to buy it, and you're going to buy it today, and it's going to take you 30 days to fix it, and you're, you think it's going to take you another three months to sell it, so four months, I'd only look at comps that are two months old or less because those are the only comps that have a chance of being used when you're ready to unload it. Right. If you know it's going to take you three or four months to fix it, why are you even looking at comps to find what you think might be a usable comp to get your value that are four months old right now? Because it's going to take you another four months, that comp is obsolete. So that's something from a strategic planning standpoint. Look at comps that are consistent with when you think you're going to deliver that property to the marketplace. Look at the active listings currently on the market right now. That's real important in your own decisions. Yeah. Correct. From an appraisal standpoint, that's what they're 
obviously that's what they're looking at now. So it's tightened up. Just like we said before, it's tightened up. But again, as long as you know the rules of engagement, you're going to make good decisions and you're going to be able to take advantage of all the inventory in the marketplace where other people go out and find it and then go back on the back end. It's almost like putting a cart before the horse. They'll go out and find something and then go back and say, can I do this deal? Yeah. But you're going to go in saying, I know what I can do. I know I can get hard money. I use the right comps. I know I have to own it for this amount of time before I sell it. And you've got everything in place. And now you have a fully functioning investment real estate business that's well put together for you to execute and And again take advantage of the marketplace that's so important because if you understand that you calculate that in your offer so you know making an offer what your costs are going to be to carry it for 90 days and you know you're going to be conservative on your after repair value and so you factor that in when you're making your offer so it's really you know it's just no different than it was before because you're just calculating these costs in and, and you're being a little more conservative. Um, well, now talk when Correct, for, yeah. It's for, just using an updated blueprint. Exactly. For your appraisals, are appraisers looking at REOs and short sales, or how are they are they ignoring those? How's that going on working right now? They can't ignore them, right? So they they can't ignore when they're trying to derive that final value. They can't ignore those properties in the marketplace. That inventory out there that's going to affect the value. So you need to be conscious of that. But what they can do, if your house is updated, they can still compare it to other houses that have been updated, so they don't have to automatically, just because it's a foreclosure next door to yours, use that one, because it might not be comparable because yours is fixed up and maybe this one isn't. They can't ignore them, per se, but they're going to look for comps that are consistent with what you're delivering to the marketplace. So it will affect it somewhat, because they can't ignore it, but if your product's better, they're going to compare it to a comparable product that's equal to yours. Right. Well, Jason, what do you see? You got a couple more questions here for you, and you've been real generous with your time. We appreciate it. What do you see are the strategies that investors are using today that are working, and what do you see that's not working? I mean, you talk to gazillions of investors. You know the guys that are killing it right now, and you know the guys that are struggling. What do you see that's working today, and what's not? Well, what's working today, I'll tell you some strategies that are working that uh, most investors don't think about. Number one, I think we all understand that you can't you can't supersede guidelines. So one thing that doesn't work for investors in, in any environment, especially today, is that I get people that'll say, yeah, I'm going to do this, and um, the bank's got to be able to make an exception for me. It's not going to happen, folks. Yeah. So I would tell you, don't try and fight guidelines. Understand them. And what I mean by that is that you can have an 800 credit score, 300 grand in the bank. You make 400,000 a year and you have no debt. So you're perfect on paper. Mm-hmm. Now you can write everything off and your income's so great, it doesn't matter. You can buy a ton of property, but here's the thing. It's very difficult to do deals above 10. Once you get to deal number five, 99% of banks go away. There's very few that'll do deal number five through 10. So you gotta know which bank's in the right order to go to. And so what I would tell you is that it doesn't matter how good you are, it's going to be very tough to get financing above number 10. But look, I look perfect on paper. doesn't matter. It becomes way more difficult. So what I've seen that's working is that investors, if you devote as much time to finding properties as you can to create partnerships to where you can find good deals and share some equity and share some cash flow with other investors, and uh, they finance it in their name. So if you know guidelines, you can grow. I mean, I think everybody would say, man, I, I wish I could buy as many as I could. Well, good. We'll bring people on your team. So one strategy is to bring people on your team, do what you do best and tell them, hey, look, I find good enough deals to where we don't even need any of your money. We'll just finance it on the back end. 
yeah. and then go out there and find the good deals and create relationships. So that's one thing that I would tell you to do so that you can take advantage of the marketplace. Don't do it on your own. Get as many as you can, but I always say he or she with the most equity partners wins because uh-huh. you can do more deals. That's number one. Number two, what do I see in today's marketplace that keeps coming up that doesn't work because they don't understand and, and no one's taught them? People getting these really good deals for ten grand, fifteen grand, and putting fifteen grand into them and thinking that they're going to get financing. Trying to get a loan below fifty thousand dollars, especially on an investment property, is very, very, very difficult. So if you're taking notes, yeah. not working, yourself as an investor or someone else you know or whatever, pass the message along that you go out there and go, oh man, this is a really good deal, man. I'm going to, I'm going to cash flow five hundred a month. And I'll have 30 grand into it. It's worth 70 grand. I mean, I got 50% equity. When you go to try and get a bank loan, that's where the oopsie comes in. If you're trying to get a loan below 50 grand on an investment property, extremely difficult. Here's why. With all the pricing adjustments for, for it being an investment property, there's pricing adjustments. For it being a low loan amount, there's another pricing adjustment. And those pricing adjustments make it to where we'd, as a lender, we'd almost sometimes, I mean, not even almost, sometimes, to do the deal as the lender, we'd actually have to pay money from all those pricing hits to do the deal. And that's not going to happen. So that's a monumental waste of time. So here's the thing. If you know that and you have a good deal, you got to find another way to fund it or pay cash for it. And as long as you know that, you're writing a good contract. But if you don't understand that and then go out and write a contract and put your own money into it and think you're going to get financing on the back end, getting a loan below 50 grand is almost impossible especially on investment property. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So I would caution, yeah, I would caution you against it. So what's not working, I know there's great deals at at low purchase prices. You better have a good strategy in place to get those deals funded because if you think it's going to be funded a different way, it's not going to happen. Right. Very well said. That's a big mistake that people make. Jason, how can people get a hold of you? And uh, I don't want to ask you about REI Black Book, but if somebody's interested in hiring you as a mortgage consultant, or maybe even get some financing from mm-hmm. you through you, what's a good way to get a hold of you? Very simple. You can simply email me, jason at gocjason.com, G-O-S-E-E-J-A-S-O-N, jason at gocjason.com, and or you can just call my cell phone, 314. Uh-oh, here we go. 749 <laughs> Yes, I train. Yes, I travel. Yes, I've trained thousand investors. And yes, I do funding. And I have Kevin Shea, who's on my team. I'll give you Kevin Shea's phone number, 314-471-6254. Call me or him. And, and yes, we're giving out our phone numbers because we're not scared. <laughs> that is awesome. That's a first in podcast land. I'm sure of it. Somebody giving out their cell phone number. But that's awesome. And guys, I've known Jason for years I trust him. He's a stand-up guy, and he's going to tell you the truth, all right? And if it doesn't work, he's going to tell you it doesn't work. That's awesome. You give your cell phone out. Don't anybody go asking me for my cell phone. I'm not ready to give it out yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, man. Awesome. Now, talk about REI Black Book. Uh, This is something you've been working on for a long time. It's rocking and rolling now. You've got a gazillion thousand investors in it. What is REI Black? Tell them, talk about how it got started because you're, you used to send these emails out every day for all the investors in your network. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Well, like I said, traveling and training, speaking, bringing on tons of new clients, right? Setting up financing for them, closing at a very high level, 
and then I'm also investing in real estate myself. And uh, I had a list. So I had a list that everybody wanted to be on from an investor standpoint because I would send out properties. I would send out this person's lease option. They need a house. Can anybody help? I need a good title company. I'd send that out. Here's a good title company to use. You name it. I would send out guideline updates so that people in my investor network know real time what they can and can't do so they're not making mistakes. And so everybody liked that. But it got to the point to where I was getting 20 or 30 requests a day and I just couldn't keep up. Yeah. So my partner on REI Blackbook for real estate investment, reiblackbook.com, we sat down and Damon looked to provide a solution for me because his backgrounds, you know, network, databases, technology, you name it. And he basically sat down and said, hey, let's combine some resources to solve this and automate it for you. So literally sat down, started collaborating and created REI Blackbook. Again, he's more the technical brain behind everything I, I was like oh yeah we'll get this done in six months and combine some of my services that i was using to outpace my competition or whatever and now uh, about two and a half years later <laughs> so it's been a lot of development so what rei Blackbook is is a real estate automation platform to literally automate your entire business from marketing syndication one of the best marketing online blankets in five minutes flat including PDF flyers, Craigslist ads, single property websites, 46 sites, you name it. We create fully functioning websites for you and put hundreds of listings on your website so you look like a a much larger investor than you might be so that you can land deals and relationships. We have automatic follow-up. So your your websites have actual real functionality to where they put in uh, their information because they need to learn more or whatever. It automatically, hands-free, builds a database for you, follows up, emails you and two people on your team so that you never let a lead slip through your fingers. And we pull comps for you, virtual tours for you, pull in rents from some of the most popular rental posting sites so you don't make cash flow mistakes. And then help you analyze the deal and crunch numbers to have professional reports that you can hand to banks or hand to sellers or or hand to buyers showing them why they need to buy from you. And then a network community. You can do any deal anywhere because we have well over 5,000 users active investors all over the United States, you can click one button and separate ourselves by Texas short sale specialist. So you can actually tell people that, that hey, uh, I do deals everywhere, and you can literally execute faster than your competition all from home and in your pajamas. Perspective-wise, I was using all these different tools. We're talking about 10, 15 different tools, paying well over $700 a month. And so we crunched them all in the one spot, and the beauty of it is, is it's literally, and also deal flow. We do deal flow for you. So you can click your deals to closing every time and never miss a step. So you can do multiple deals and feel confident that you're not forgetting something. Yeah. And we put those, the beauty of it all, one password. Mm-hmm. So one website, one password. You don't have to go 50 different places to try and run your real estate business. We pulled all the data in to, to streamline your business from one one spot and the testament to the hard work that we put in, we signed a five-year contract with the largest real estate training company in America last July. And so there's 150 to 200 new users and business partners for anybody that wants to join every month. So you can go on vacation, you come back, and your weapon's bigger. And um, 200 real estate documents, too. So you can execute documents from your phone. You can email, print, download, and share. No one can compete with you, all from your Internet connection on your phone, computer, home, wherever, laptop. You name it, that's what we do. We want you to find deals and find money, that's it. We help with the money, but find deals and find money, 
ex- and we help you execute everything else that's still critical to your success. We just don't want you doing it because that's not a high-dollar activity for you. We just hope you do it very efficiently in, in turning man hours into minutes, basically. Well, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I've seen this, guys. Uh, I've seen REI Black Book, and I endorse it. It's a powerful tool. And J- Jason and his team are still working on it and improving on it every day. They're constantly rolling out new updates and improvements, and it's a great tool as it is. But still, there's a lot of great things coming down the line that they keep on updating and revising. And I, I love it. It's a great tool, and I see a lot of investors getting excited about it because of the networking and the social aspect of it. Uh, it's a great tool, and you should be really proud of that. I was going to say, others have called it uh, the Facebook for real estate. It's, so it's, um, I mean, you instantly connect. There's groups, you name it, and yes, there's stuff coming down the pipe. we got 17 uh, autoresponder campaigns coming, so people are going to really enjoy that. So literally, you just click a button, and you're ready to roll. Yeah, it's good, 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 good. So, Jason, you've been very generous with your time and knowledge, and appreciate you giving out your phone number and letting people contact you. Uh, Jason at GoSeeJason.com. And so good, man. I, I can't think of anything else to ask you. Anything, any parting words you want to say, Jason? Yeah, just the cue in the marketplace. It's your opportunity now to grow your real estate business, and it's the best time to do it. Just go in knowing what you can and can't do, and you'll execute and, and make money. And then, as always, I mean, we're in the marketplace today where everybody automates, so seriously look into automating your business so that you can do those high-dollar activities on a daily basis. And uh, like I said, love to see you guys on reiblackbook.com. Yes. You can get in there and start networking immediately within 60 seconds. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, God bless, and uh, we'll talk soon. You're going to have a poker tournament at your house again someday soon, right? And and invite me back, even though I kicked your butt last time, Jason? (laughs) You betcha. I'll I'll have you in, and I'll give everybody an update. (laughs) But, uh, no, enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully you guys take good stuff away from this podcast and execute. If you need anything, just let us know. All right. Take care, man. It's good talking to you.